Dr. Funkenstein Clinton. And whenever I'm in Ann Arbor, I check out WCBN FM. They do the job. WCBN FM and Arbor. What make you so no good, eh? Listen ya. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And I've got to tell you, I'm just thrilled to be sitting here in the studio with Norton Jester. <laughs> Norton, are, are you... Are you um, intoxicated or delighted uh excited <laughs> i'm all those things and a lot more <laughs> thank you so much for coming to wcbn today thank you i appreciate that i had no place else to go so, <laughs> so this was as good a place yeah. as any for the moment and thanks for picking the first song um oh that's an old wonderful song everybody should know it but nobody does so you're you're yeah this is the first it's a public service it I'm is doing. a I can see that you're doing that all the time for yes. people, Norton. That's just how you roll, really. Um, but without further ado, um, I'm going to, I'll read your short bio in the back of The Phantom Tollbooth. Um, uh, this book just hit its 50th anniversary in 2011, didn't it, Norton? Yes. The 50th anniversary of the book. Came out in 61. And so we'll talk a little bit about that today. And you're in town to give the Lamstein Children's Lecture tomorrow at UMA. Right. Um, and there'll be a, a screening of the documentary. Exactly. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the documentary, the, the film that'll be shown at five? Well, it was a great surprise to me. I knew the 50th anniversary was coming up, and they were prepared to make a bit of a fuss about it. But there was a very nice young filmmaker in New York who uh, knew a friend of mine. And she wanted to make a documentary of it. And I had no idea. I'd never done a film like that. She wanted me to be interviewed and be in it and part of it. So we spent a lot of time together, and she did an absolutely brilliant job. It's a, the, the film is just under an hour, and she was focusing really on why the book got written, how it got written, and what effect it's had on things in children's literature. 
And it was an interesting thing because at, at the time it was written, in 1959 and 60, children's literature was a disaster area, at least to me. To me it was. Because their only idea was to do what sold very well the previous year. And they, everybody was interested in why everybody else in the world's children seemed to be learning more and better than American children. And especially because the Russians were were uh, getting the hydrogen bomb. Everything was happening that made us very self-conscious and feel insecure. And they decided that the best way to teach children was to write books for them in which there was nothing that they didn't know before they picked up the book. That makes no sense. No, it never made sense any time. So, so, and I, I had no idea when I wrote the book that I was writing a children's book. I was just doodling trying to avoid doing something that I didn't want to do. And Is that I, a pattern in, oh, a th- in totally your life? a pattern. It's a lesson in life for me. Almost everything good I've done, I've done because I'm trying to avoid something else that I didn't want to do, that I once did want to do. So my life goes up and down, you know, that way. But anyway, when, when the book... Um, what were you avoiding when you, when you started writing The Phantom Toll Booth? And, I had gotten, and, I don't know why, a Ford Foundation grant to do a book, although I didn't look at it again as a book. It was just some stuff I was going to put together on um, urban planning and design. I had I had studied for a year and a half in England on a Fulbright scholarship. And I, I put it in as kind of a lark, thinking that I never would get it. And I don't know why I did get it, and I discovered the truth of an old saying. When God wants to punish you, he grants you wishes. And there I was with this okay. enormous load on a, a very, not scholarly, but a serious book that I wasn't yet ready to write. And uh, and had you just come back from the Navy at this point? Yes, yes. I was. I, I did my Fulbright, then I went into the Navy and uh, for three and a half years. And that was an adventure in itself, too. And, and now I'm back home, and I'm working in architecture. I put in a... a, a an application for a Ford Foundation grant, which I never expected, and I got it. So, so I'm, I'm in the soup, as it were. Right. And suddenly you have to write some book about cities I have, for children? I have Is boxes it? full of 3x5 and 4x6 cards with my notes all over them, which I will never use. But I did use some of it in the Phantom Tollbooth. The two cities of, of, of reality and illusions come directly from the research I did in the, for the book on cities. Yeah. How so? Well, it, people walk around cities, and they don't live in them anymore. They just wander around going from place to place and never noticing what they're seeing. So the, in the book, of course, in the Phantom Toll book, reality disappears. It's no longer there. The only thing that's there is illusions, which you can do anytime. The more illusions you have, the more city you have. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, that's, and that actually had its origin on your 3x5 cards right. when you were starting to to realize like what was happening in cities. I will give you a good price for all those cards if you would like to buy them. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> You're really you. kind. In fact, hold on. I'm going to read your bio before we go any further. We'll just, we'll get, I know. It seemed like I had. I said I was going to do it, and then I, I got distracted by you, Norton. Norton Juster is an architect and planner and the author of a number of highly acclaimed children's books, including The Dot and the Line which was made into an Academy Award-winning film. That's true. <laughs> By Chuck Jones, one oh. of the great animators of our time. Right. I'm so glad. Okay. He has collaborated with Sheldon Harnick on the libretto 
for an opera based on the Phantom Tollbooth. Right. Maybe we can find some of that music to play, too. Who knows? This musical adaptation with a score by Arnold Black premiered in 1995 and has been performed in schools and theaters nationwide. Right. And at the, at the Kennedy Center in uh, Washington. <sighs> That's... And toured the country for about eight months from the Kennedy Center. This story has legs, doesn't it? <laughs> really, Mr. Jester is an amateur cook. Now we're getting to the, the meat of things, the meat and potatoes, and professional eater. Yes. Did you put this it's in fine, the bio? It's Did a you? fine distinction, but it's meaningful. <laughs> How do... I eat better than I cook. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, sadly. <laughs> he lives with his wife in western Massachusetts. True. In Amherst. You have me in tears. <laughs> Why? I just, I, what? Did I do such a poor job? <laughs> no, you did beautifully. <laughs> um, well, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's amazing to see like that your, your life has not been necessarily, you didn't like set out to be a writer and you've created these amazing books. Like you've got, I mean, how does it feel to have a classic of children's literature, like, oh, a classic of children's literature. That's right. Well, I don't know whether it's a classic. That's a funny word. Everybody throws it around. Yes. Was oh, I, I, was being... I was brought down to earth one day. I got a very nice little letter from uh, Philip Pullman, the English writer. Oh, yes. I, I love The Golden yeah. Compass. Yes. And, and he's not only a wonderful writer, but, uh, you know, a very wonderful guy. And he, we, he was chatty in the letter for a little bit. And finally, as an afterthought, he said, when, it's, when it reaches its 100th anniversary, then you have a classic. <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> so I guess we'll just have to see. I'm not going to be around for it, but pay attention. And I, Okay, I will. I will. I'm on it, Norton. You can, you can count on me. And we also have, we have other books on the table of yours today. Um, we've got, this was written a couple of years after the Phantom, Phantom Tollbooth. Um, 65, Alberic, written in 1965. Alberic the Wise and Other Journeys. Mm -hmm. And, and then that, that comes from a, an interesting background. I've, in in uh, my work in architecture and my studying architecture, just my interest in architecture, the thing that I've always enjoyed most are the medieval periods, the, the Romanesque architecture and things. And I picked up many books on. They were they wrote a lot of books on. Uh, they were called day books, and they they illustrated and wrote about what people's ordinary lives were back were like. And uh, I got going, I got thinking about them, and I had a million pictures I'd taken on trips of mine about the period. And I decided I'd write a book of short stories. They turned out to be actually three long short stories, almost like little novellas. And, uh, and they were about that period of time. And uh, I decided I'd take three concepts that we all think we know about. What's wisdom? What's truth? and what's happiness, and turn them completely around and tell them from a totally different point of view in that period of time. And what that was great, it. What a great idea, and what a complicated idea, too. Well, it wasn't so complicated when you got going on them. No? Mm -hmm. See, I don't write... It's interesting. I don't know how this helped, but I never write sequentially. I write bits and pieces, and I, I set them aside and put them in big envelopes and... Uh, and every once in a while, I'll take them out, and I'll, something will hit me and say, gee, this, this works together, or maybe I can do something with this. And, uh, and things happen that way. They sort of grow almost organically. And some things get, get thrown out, and other things get put in or get moved around eventually. But it's, it's a very different way of doing things. 
which and every writer has that different way, only it's their own different way. So, so even for the Phantom Tollbooth, for example, Norton, was it that um, you would just, if you were sitting down to write, you would have some sort of an image and like with the, could you, how did the Dirty Bird chapter happen? Ooh. Can you remember? <laughs> I'll tell you, the way I, the way I usually write when I'm working on something is to get up very early. I do that anyway because I seem to get up early. And I go out with a, with a little notebook in my pocket and a couple of pencils, and I take a walk. And now sometimes it's an hour, an hour and a half. Sometimes it's two hours. I come back with that notebook filled with stuff, 90% of which is gibberish. But every once in a while, there's something in there that has, has promise to it. And then I get, on the rest of the day, I'll try to work on what I, what I gleaned from that little notebook. There is something about walking, isn't it? There, oh, it opens up. The one yeah. miraculous thing about those walks is that I'm still alive, because I, this was in New York City when I was living, and I take walks. I must have crossed a hundred different streets, and had no recollection of crossing any of those streets. Because you were writing in the notebook. Because too? I was thinking, and, I was in my own world, yes. and I don't remember seeing a car. <laughs> Maybe your hearing was extraordinarily good, so you sort of were. Well, it just I was just lucky, or people were careful. After I guess after a while, they began to know who was taking the walk, and they watched that maniac. <laughs> right, right. At about this time of morning, yeah, right. every day. Yeah, you, I don't think you could do this. Um, as our walk here to the station proved today, you'd have to kind of yeah. be on your toes. I couldn't do it here. where I live in Amherst. People drive. I mean, first of all, there's a big university there, like here, and it's full of kids who don't know how to drive. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to take that kind of a walk where I am now. But I'll walk around the block several times. And do you still, are you still, do, is that part of your practice now, Norton? Are you, what? you walking, like walking and thinking? I, and... I do walk. But one, there's one very interesting thing about my notes. Uh, I scribble all the time and I put them away and I buy these 9 by 12 envelopes and stuff them full of papers. And one day my wife was looking at them. I write, I don't type, I don't use computers, I don't do anything. I buy boxes of these yellow-colored number two pencils, which I chew on <laughs> when I'm thinking. And after a while, I get so disgusting that I have to throw one out and get another one. That's how I use them. And eight-and-a-half by 11 pads. And she saw a whole also bunch. Also yellow. No, no. Oh, these, no? these were kind of light gray. I like Light those. gray. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. And she came by one day and said, I don't know how you can use those or, or read them, these things. They're all jumbled up all over the place. She said, let me take a bunch of them, and I'll type them up for you, and they'll be in wonderful shape. So she did that, and I put them in an envelope and put them away for several weeks, and I took them out, and I couldn't understand them. I did, couldn't read them. I didn't know what they meant. Because when I made my notes, I letter in all different ways, big, small, different colors. I make drawings, diagrams. I, arrows go all over the place, <laughs> other little pictures in it. Every, but as soon as I take that page out, I know exactly right. where I was and what I was thinking about. And I just couldn't do that. Order is the, is, is the great enemy for me. Right. Oh, I hear you, Norton. I do. It's like you had it, created a map for yourself, but you were the only one that can read it. Well, exactly. It is, it is a map, and that's been a great uh, thing of mine. I love maps. I have great collections of maps. They're all over the house. <laughs> Just like in the how there's a map at the beginning of the Phantom well, Tollbooth. That, that came from a, a, a related thing. One of, the, one of the kinds of books I read as a kid were the Arthur Ransom novels, uh, mostly for boys. They were English, and they were every book that came out by Arthur Ransom 
had map and papers, and I mm. loved that. Yeah. And so I decided my book, the first book, has to have map and papers. Well, when it came time to doing the illustrations, Jules, who was very idiosyncratic about what he and what he would not draw, said, I don't draw maps. I can't draw maps. So you wouldn't do it. So we argued for one, and I finally said, the hell with it. I drew the map. He put a piece of paper over it and traced it so it would look like his writing, <laughs> ah. with his line, you know, and everything. And then from that point on, every time we went anywhere, it always came up, if we were doing a little presentation or something, <laughs> someone said how much they loved the maps. And what really ticked me off was he accepted all the praise <laughs> as if he had drawn the map. You're like, he's a pretty good tracer. <laughs> but he, we, had, we had things. He used to say, I don't draw backgrounds very well. Well, backgrounds to him were anything except people. He, he loved to draw people. And all his, his early cartooning were, were people. So it was very hard. Like, there's one point in the story where the, um, the armies of wisdom uh, are going to rescue Rhyme and Reason when they're trying to rescue the two princesses. And I had them mounted on horseback. And he came to me one day and said, would I mind if he mounted them on cats? Because he didn't <laughs> like to draw horses. So I said, no, I don't think that'll work. So he drew just a little silhouette of a horse and then set it back about six or seven times and put about 18 different people on them. So you, there weren't the same number of horses as people. And But all through the writing of the book, we would do this. And it finally became a game. He would try to uh, draw things that he knew I didn't want it. And I would try to write things <laughs> that I knew he couldn't illustrate. And in in the book, though it was never drawn, the, one of the group of demons is called the Triple Demons of Compromise. One's tall and thin, one's short and fat, and the third one is exactly like the other two, <laughs> which I made up only for him to drive him crazy. <laughs> This is some book, Norton. This is what we're going to we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back okay. to talk more today on the program. Norton Juster is here. We've been talking about the Phantom Tollbooth. Norton Juster is going to be at UMA tomorrow at the Helmut Stern Auditorium at five for a screening of the documentary, um, The Making of the Phantom Tollbooth, and then at six for a Q&A with Michael Byers afterwards. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got the Liz behind the glass engineering and it's so glad to have you here Norton we'll be right back Thank
sat right down and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you. I'm gonna write words oh so sweet. They're gonna knock me off my feet. A lot of kisses on the bottom. I'll be glad I got on I'm gonna smile and say I hope you're feeling better And close with love the way you do I'm gonna sit right down And write myself a letter And make believe It came from Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Norton Juster is here in the studio picking songs for us to hear. Thank you. That was a lovely one. Yes. (laughs) My favorites are all at least 50 or 60 years old. That's the way. To do it. Um, and Norton, before the break, we were talking about the Phantom Toll Booth. And um, what was that name? <laughs> the Phantom Toll Booth. Oh. Um, what I I loved is that um, that you said maybe one of the only things that dates the story is the actual toll, toll booth itself. Well, that that amazed me because nowadays they're rapidly taking toll booths off all the highways. And to me, I was looking for something, a vehicle, really, to take someone from one world to another. Not so easy, because Alice uses up the rabbit hole. Yes. And uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the back of the wardrobe. And, and everybody has something picked. And it seemed to me, I remembered as a kid going through toll booths, and they were always kind of magical, because you didn't know what was happening. I didn't. Anyway, why would you stop at a place and give them money? Right. I, I had no idea. But, but that, uh, it struck me that, and if, if you want to change someone's point of view and put them in a world that was a very different, I, the toll booth was, was perfect. The other thing that I loved as a kid was knowing that certain states were different colors, because we had a lot of maps, that certain states were pink, certain <laughs> states were light green. And I'd never noticed it when we crossed those borders. You know, it always felt so terribly cheated that they weren't these different colors. And now we seem to just have red and blue states. We need to bring back (laughs) that other map, Norton, don't we? I I think I had that same map as a kid, and it was even a puzzle, right? That way, a real okay. They still are in large measure. Yeah. Did you have that wooden puzzle of the U.S. states? I had wooden wooden puzzles of that. Sure. Well, okay. Well, let's let's see. Let's um, 
back to the writing for a moment. Um, we we were talking a little bit about um, your life story, I suppose, <laughs> so far, and um, and how you had you'd you'd been in the Navy and then you returned and you were back in New York City, um, and that's when you met Jules Pfeiffer around that time. In, but, a, in a strange way, yeah. Were, the were last you, I was in the Navy three and a half years, and the last stationing I had was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and they explained it that when when they knew someone was going to be out, the last station they tried to put him as close to home as they possibly could. It was a very nice thing to do. So I arrived at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and they announced to me that I had two choices. I could live on housing they had on the base, which is like death. You know, It was, wasn't really a great place, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Or they gave me a living allowance, and I could go find my own place to live. Now, the living allowance that they offered me, and I remember it exactly because it seemed so odd, was $77.10 a month. Admittedly, this was earlier, so you, that price is not outlandish. But 77 but it wasn't and much, 10 cents. You know, yeah. and you did. So I started looking around, and the nearest place, the Brooklyn Navy, that I would like to live was, the, was uh, Brooklyn Heights, which was just beginning the process of changing at that time. It was still a pretty dingy area, but it was a fun area. I liked it. So I looked around, I looked around, and I finally found a little place owned by an Austrian dentist named Dr. Noskin. She had two houses adjacent to each other, and she had one apartment in the basement uh, overlooking the back garden but didn't have a toilet. I mean, didn't have a, a bathroom at all. We shared it with another apartment on that floor. That was at a time when anything in my life worked. You know, that, that right. wasn't It wasn't a big deal thing. And I didn't know it, but Jules lived on the second floor. So quite accidentally, I met him. He claims we met when we were both taking out the garbage together. I claim that we met when I was taking out the garbage and he was looking for something to eat. <laughs> and this is how the friendship started. Right. And he was just blossoming with this marvelous uh, uh, strip that he was putting out, you know, about, uh, about life. And, and uh, he was crawling inside everybody's soul and looking for things he could parody. And w w which he did, you know, he was, and, and politically, he, he always says that one of his functions in life in those years was to overthrow the United States government. Uh, but he, and, and from that, he's, he had never done anything for children's books. I had never written a children's book or any kind of a book. And well, both of us blundered through without knowing what we were doing. And that you couldn't do it. Well, we we didn't know we right do it. exactly. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that was a big advantage that we, that we <laughs> or had. That there were all these rules that when, you were supposed when to I do. When I had finished about fifty pages, and he had done some illustrations which were incredibly good, uh, the girl he was going with at the time, who he ultimately married, said, "Let me take this to a, an editor I know, and worked at Random House." It turned out that this editor was not a children's book editor, which I think is the only reason the book got published. But a wonderful editor, uh, one of the one of the literary uh, giants, really, of American publishing at that time, a man named Jason Epstein, and and he is still around. You know, I speak to him occasionally, and uh, and he loved it. He had he had started, <coughs> excuse me, a new um, line of books that he was going to do, and it was called the Looking Glass Library, and uh, perfect. Yeah, and it was, they were mostly reprints of old children's books. A lot of them were English. Some of them were translated from European. The one thing about them was they were too difficult. 
At least that's what the American yeah. publishers thought, and they, and they wouldn't sell. But he loved my book for some reason, and he was good. they did it as the only original before the whole thing went bankrupt. Uh, the only original book that, that the Looking Glass, Gla well, they weren't formally with the Looking Glass Library, but they were in that same group. And, that, and they put it out, and, uh, and uh, he was happy as a lark to put it out. He's the best editor I ever worked with. I mean, he, he would, like very few editors, he, he would sit with you, and he wouldn't tell you what to do, or this has to change, or this has to do this or that. But we'd just talk about things, and I'd go away with them. And I'd come back, and they'd be very different. Not on his terms, not on my terms, but on the way they had to be. Mm. And it was just such a pleasure to work. But he was very intimidating. I remember, he, there was one section of the book he, he earnestly didn't like. And it was the section on, that's one of my favorites, and that is where the orchestra plays the dawn. Yeah. Yes. And I knew he, his criticism was valid. I knew it was right. It did not advance the flow of the book. It was just something that I liked in there. We argued and argued for session after session. Finally, one day he said, well, it's your book. And I sat there frozen. I was so terrified because I'm saying to myself, what are you doing? This is one of the best editors in New York, and you're telling him that you're not going to make, make a change. But you had to trust your, yourself. But, but I did. And luckily, everybody loves that section yes. of the book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Time has proved that you made the... Well, I don't know whether I was right or wrong. I don't think it would have made an enormous difference either way, but I liked it that way, and that's... You know, the question always people always ask you about books is who you wrote it for. And the one thing that's hardest to talk to students or anybody working in writing is you don't write a book for anybody but yourself, ever. You don't gear it. You don't write it to teach lessons. You write it because it's something that comes from you, and you believe it, and it means something to you. Then you hope that somebody else will re respond in some way, good, bad, or otherwise. But you can't direct it. And, uh, and it's a thing you have to learn in a slow, hard way, because the whole issue of even writing books for an, a particular age group is so crazy. Um, Philip Pullman, who, I, who I, as we know we talked about before, was leading that fight in Great Britain about abolishing that. And I wrote him some material that he found useful also. And my sense was there's, not, there's a lot of difference between kids and ages 6, 8, 10, and 12. But there's also a lot of difference between adults, 24, 26, 28, 30, 34. You know? right. Why don't you put things in like for age group 28 to 37 right. or something? I mean, it's and it's hilarious to think of it that way, but that's exactly what we're we're we doing do, for yeah. the young readers. Exactly. Except you didn't. You bucked the system, you know. And we have the Phantom Tollbooth, which is a story for everyone for all time. Well, you hope that's the way it'll happen. But you, it's what it's what something means to the individual reader. When you go in with teachers, sometimes it's very disconcerting because they teachers tend to believe there is one way to look at something. And if a kid comes in and says, this is what I think of this, or this is what this means, and it doesn't mean what the teacher thinks it means, he's in trouble. I did that. I was always coming and feeling so full of myself for something that I read. And she would look at it, that's not what it means, Norton. And she'd explain to me what it means on her terms. But you, what, what it means to you is the whole, is the whole ball game. And having some sort of connection to it. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. Will you read us something from the Phantom Toll Booth? Uh, okay, what would you like? <laughs> We've staged this reading. Yes, of course. <laughs> but where, if you've got that, if you've got that page going, we could just start there. I have it because you put it in front of me. Okay, I let me. <laughs> now you're making it sound like I forced you to read this. <laughs> I'm easy to force. Um, one of the one of the things that I loved getting into the book, and it's a, it's a great uh, belief of mine, is that we learn an enormous number of things or are amused by enormous number of things that are taken out of context. It's a very liberating position to be in. And there's a little piece of the book here. Uh, it's, uh, it's called The Dirty Bird, where Milo and Tak and the Humbug are trying to climb up to the castle in the air to rescue rhyme and reason and they hear they're they're climbing up this desolate windy uh, impossible peak to try to get to where they are and uh, and they suddenly come across um, well I'll start to read it for you and I'll start at right at a point where it says Milo says I can hardly see a thing said Milo taking hold of Tox's tail as a sticky mist engulfed the moon perhaps we should wait until morning They'll be, <clears throat> they'll be mourning for you soon enough, came a reply from directly above. And this was followed by a hideous cackling laugh, very much like someone choking on a fishbone. Clinging to one of the greasy rocks and blending almost perfectly with it was a large, unkempt, and exceedingly soiled bird who looked more like a dirty floor mop than anything else. He had a sharp, dangerous beak. The one eye he chose to open stared down maliciously. I don't think you understand, said Milo timidly. We're looking for a place to spend the night. It's not yours to spend, the bird shrieked again, and followed this with the same horrible laugh. That doesn't make any sense, you see, he started to explain. Dollars or cents, it's still not yours to spend, the bird replied haughtily. But I didn't mean, insisted Milo. Of course you're mean, interrupted the bird, closing one eye, opening the other. Anyone who'd spend a night that doesn't belong to him is very mean. <laughs> well, I thought that by, he tried again desperately, if you want to buy... I'm sure I can arrange more that for am amiably. I'm sure oh, I've lost my place here. La, I'm sure we can arrange to sell, but with what you're with what you're doing, you'll probably end up in a cell anyway. <laughs> Pardon me, I'm, I'm, this is a tongue twister. <laughs> that doesn't seem right," said Milo. Everything the bird said, he took the wrong way. He hardly knew what he was saying. Agree," said the bird with a click of his beak. But neither is it left. Although if I were you, I would have left a long time ago. Let me try once more, Milo said in an effort to explain. In other words, you mean you have other words, cried the bird happily? Well, by all means, use them. You're certainly not doing very well with the ones you have now. Must you always interrupt like that, said Tock irritably. Even he was becoming impatient. Naturally, the bird cackled. It's my job. I take the words right out of your mouth. <laughs> Haven't we met before? I'm the ever-present word snatcher, and I'm sure I know your friend the bug. And then he leaned all the way forward and gave a terrible, knowing smile. The humbug, who was too big to hide and too frightened to move, denied everything. Is everyone who lives in ignorance like you? asked Milo. Much worse, he said longingly, but I don't live here. I'm from a place far away called Context. Don't you think you should be getting back? suggested the bug. What a horrible thought, the bird shuddered. It's such an unpleasant place that I spend almost all of my time out of it. Besides, what could be nicer than these grimy mountains? 
Almost anything, thought Milo as he pulled his collar up. And then he asked the bird, Are you a demon? I'm afraid not, he replied sadly. Several filthy tears rolled down his, his beak. I've tried to, but the best I can manage to be is a nuisance. And before Milo could reply, he flapped his dingy wings and flew off in a cascade of dust and dirt and fuzz. Wait, shouted Milo, who thought of many other questions to ask. Thirty-four pounds, shrieked the bird as he disappeared into the fog. He was certainly on no help, said Milo. <laughs> but that's the ultimate being out of context. I mean, nothing worked at all. You know. Right. It's the way when I was a kid, I used to watch Marx Brothers movies. They were all being made in the 30s when I was growing up. And the first couple of times you saw them, uh, they made no sense whatsoever. They were still <laughs> funny because I mean, they, they, half of their humor was in the, in the pantomime uh, that went on. But after a while, you see them, and they made ultimate good sense well, in can, most cases. And you've got that rhythm going <laughs> in the language there. Well, they everything. There's, I, there's one, one of my favorite scenes is where I think two of them. I think it's uh, uh, who was the piano player? Uh, Harpo? Uh, no, Harpo played the harp. Oh, the harp. Oh, yeah. Chico. <laughs> Chico. And, 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 the, um, and the one with the mustache. Uh, oh, God. Uh, Groucho. Oh, yeah. Going over a contract together that they were trying to figure out. And they kept tearing things out because they oh, didn't right. like it. Till they had almost so, nothing left of it. And finally he reads one thing. And Chico says, what's that? He said, oh, don't worry about it. It's only a sanity clause. And says, everybody knows there is no sanity clause. And, and they went on from there. I, I, could, I must have seen every one of those movies a hundred times because they were so wonderful. And, and you do, you capture that back and forth mm -hmm. or interruptions. Like, why must oh. you always interrupt me? And that's what they were always the doing great, as well. The, the great um, a word, word manipulator was my father. I've talked yeah. about him before. And Be he, he was a very gentle, kind man. He, was, he, he had a wonderful sense of humor, but it wasn't one of those things that made you slap your knee and roll over on the floor. It was very quiet and sneaky, his humor. I would walk in sometimes, and he'd look at me and say, Aha, you're coming early since lately. You used to be behind before, but now you're first at last. I had no idea what he was talking about. So he'd get up, walk over, put his arm around me and say, You're a good kid, and I'd like to see you get ahead. You need one. And this was every single day, practically. Every um, day. Something different. So this was wordplay. Oh, completely. And he loves punnings, punning, too. He used to take a swimming all the time. <clears throat> my father couldn't swim it and was deathly afraid of the water. But he'd walk in. This is in the ocean. He'd walk in up to his waist, and he'd stand there, and my brother and I would swim around, and we'd constantly plead with him to come in the water. And one day he just stopped very seriously and looked at us and said, Remember, he also surfs who only stands and wades. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant then. But gradually, as I got more used to them, that's a whole arsenal of things that you can play with language. And so his spirit is yeah. in the Phantom oh, Tollbooth. everywhere, everywhere. And there's another one, too, but I'm going to save it for tomorrow, that has to do with a man named Colonel Lemuel Q. Stutnagel. I don't know if you ever heard that name. 1940s and 50s, a writer and a radio performer. And uh, So, but we'll have to stay tuned? Oh, I think so, yeah. Okay, so tomorrow at the Lambstein Children's Lecture at yeah, UMA. That'll bring thousands of more They're going to be rolling in. They're going to be, <laughs> this is, I think that you're going to need a bigger venue, I think. This is crazy. <laughs>
Oh, well, um, Norton, you also, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll talk a bit more before the end of the show. Okay. Anyway, thank and we'll be right back. You've got Living Writers. Are we off? Right back. Oh. living writers thanks for tuning in today norton juster is here he's laughing at me norton what did i do now no i just love the idea of being referred to as a living writer i told i know it's hilarious <laughs> i'm glad that we call no, it's, very, it's very reassuring to someone my age it's like when people say people say to me sometimes gee you look very well and you uh, think what were you expecting no but <laughs> it seems to me there's only one step beyond that and that's when people come to see you and say doesn't he look natural? Oh, no. That's terrible. <laughs> Where do we go from there, yeah. right, Norton? Where do we go from there? Well, that's been this edition of Living Writers. No, just mm-hmm. um, Norton, there was, you said that The Phantom Tollbooth was the first book you wrote. Yep. Um, but I've... I've but that's not true. But that's not true, is it? Which, it's what was the first the... book that I published. Yes. So what about The Passing of Irving? 
Oh, you even know where I'm, what I was uh, alluding to, huh? Yeah, because what it is it about? It was something I did while I was in the Navy. I was stationed to the two most miserable places in the world. I was in the Seabees. I don't know whether you know what the Seabees were. It's a part mm-hmm. of naval engineering. And they were the people, they always used to joke about it. When the Marines used to land on a shore, it was always the Seabees that were there building things for them to land to use. <gasps> so you would have to go first. But Treacherous. Where was I? I'm beginning. First of all, this. uh, Oh, the passing of Irving? Where you. Yeah, oh, the passing of Irving. Did you have time to write the story? I was stationed in Newfoundland in in the middle of the wintertime, which was dreadful and cold and miserable. And and, uh, I had, like in any service thing, you work for part of the day, but a large part of your time is really not much to do. So I had brought, I always brought with me watercolors and some pads and things and just messed around and I started to do some illustrations they were all not copies of anything but based on things I read like the Oz books and the fairy tale books and things like that and to dry and we were living on a barrack ship which is an old converted LST from World War II in the harbor right there and I when I did all these when you do watercolors they you do them very quickly usually so I needed places for them to dry and everything so I tape them up on the walls all over the place or the bulkheads as they used to call them your own gallery well I I didn't think anybody you know took exception to them but the commanding officer did and he called me into his office and announced that navy men which was us <sighs> didn't draw pictures of little elves and princesses and, and uh, other kinds of things like that, castles, you know, you name it. He didn't want to see any more of those. So I had to put everything away. But from that came the first book called The Passing of Irving, which was about a prehistoric or a monster that was mythological but didn't know he was mythological. He thought he was real. And the whole book concerns itself is with how he finally has to accept that he is mythological. And it was, I still have it at home. It's kind of fun. I sent it into some publishers. I got some very nice uh, and useful criticisms back, but I knew it never would be published. And I did all the illustrations myself. And I think they're very nice illustrations. I still, I still have them, so... But what if you sent it out now, Norton? Surely. I don't think I would, because it's not really... Good enough, I don't think. I mean, it has it has interest, yeah. I but, mean, it sounds interesting because he thinks he's he thinks he's real. He's myth, yeah. And I want to know what happens. <laughs> Are you going to tell us? Will no. you tell? Well, if you're not going to, pu- come on, Norton. You don't have to a- have to have the answer to everything, you know. Oh, jeez. <laughs> it just seems like if you're not going to, okay, okay. Well, can we talk a little bit about how? You had these pieces of the Phantom Tollbooth, the story. You said you just write them, not necessarily in an order, which is which is so. Um, it's it feels so great, um, especially for a journey story, which you think would be sort mm-hmm. of like, well, here's the first part of the journey, or or so. But you're always breaking the rules. Yeah, well, there are no rules. I mean, you, you start out in some way, and things are always changing. It's like sometimes you're writing. And you get to a point where it would be very right and important and convenient if one of the characters did something in a certain way. And then you look at it and you say, but that character would not do that in that way. And then you have to find some other way to, to do it because you can't violate your characters that way. At least I, I right. never can. 
And uh, it makes things very difficult sometimes. There are a lot of difficulties in, in, in trying to write anything. The, the greatest difficulty that young people have in writing, I think, is they view the characters as being only important when they're on stage, and they're on stage when they're on page. And then they, they hang up in a closet. Waiting for their Waiting for their next entrance yeah. on stage. It doesn't work. You have to have the sense of that character being living continuously and part of that continuity of, the, of his own and the life that goes on around him or her. And uh, it's very hard to do sometimes. In order to get... I do one thing, which I find very useful. I'll have a couple of characters that I'm not really feeling comfortable with. So I sit down and write long conversations between them. I don't. They'll start out like it was just a group of us, say, sitting having a bull session, and they will they will talk and it's about all kinds of things. And after a while, I get to know them a little better, and then mm -hmm. I can use them. Even that's pretentious to say that I'm using them, <laughs> but they flow in the story in a way that is is real and truthful, and has a continuity. So you don't think they're just there to make that point on that page. Because they've already, it's almost like they've already, you know what they were saying before mm -hmm. and, af and after that. And I proposed that once. I did, I did a series of uh, little workshop things for, uh, in New York. It's a, a book called Symphony, a building called Symphony Space that they run a whole lot of summer programs on. And uh, I did some things. And the kids absolutely loved it. They had such a good time, man. Norton, how did you come up with the name for Milo? Well, let's see. I had never heard the, the name before. When I was in Liverpool, at, I was at the University of Liverpool on my Fulbright, you know. And uh, Liverpool is a strange city, you know. It's and they, not, not they, a beautiful city in any way. Very industrial. They speak a bit funny. <laughs> Excuse me a second. I'm tired of rattling that thing around. Yeah. Um, we got to know some people who were from Dublin. Dublin's just across mm -hmm. the Irish Sea from Liverpool. But to get across from one place to the other is one of the worst trips ever invented. The Irish Sea is constantly rough and very difficult, and you get sick on it. And so you were on a ferry. And Yeah, it's, a, it's like a ferry. <laughs> but we never had enough money to go inside the ferry. We rode on deck all the time in the worst storms imaginable and just rolling around all night. And uh, she, the woman who, who I got became very friendly with... Uh, went back and forth all the time, and she was in, in several of the good theaters uh, back in Dublin. They still had wonderful theaters. And uh, she introduced me to a guy, a friend of hers, whose name was Milo O'Shea. You ever hear that name? O'Shea, but not no, Milo. Milo O'Shea no. was an actor, a character actor, came over to this country, settled in Hollywood, and became for years and years a very successful character actor. He never had leads, but he was a really good actor. And I loved that name. I just couldn't get it out of my head. So when I needed a character for the uh, for the book, it was Milo. Now, I didn't know that Joe Heller had a character named Milo in Catch-22. Oh, no, I didn't know like that. I didn't Milo remember that. Milo Minderbinder or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, because we don't know Milo's. <clears throat> no. We don't know his last name. No, he is has it, no. Is it O'Shea? <laughs> I don't know, it, he, certainly. It's just Milo is Milo, yeah, isn't it? And then when did, um, when did Top come into the picture? Like, when did you decide he was going to have this well, watchdog? Well, when, when we had Milo, who was the, our protagonist, okay? 
And I said I needed someone to be a mentor to him. And uh, I tried to think, where, where was the model for, for, uh, for that mentor? And, and the first thing I could think of was a, a serial that played on the radio when I came home from school every day at about 3 o'clock called Jack Armstrong, the All-American Boy. And he had an, an Uncle Jim who was all those things. He was dependable. He was truthful. He was supportive. He, his advice he gave was always good. He always took care of, of Jack Armstrong. I said, that's the character I want, but I don't want Uncle Jim. I want an animal. What better than a watchdog? So then I had another problem because I had the character as the mentor do all good influence. I needed the other side of the coin. And, and so came along the humbug who was not trustworthy, did everything wrong, everything in his own interest, never told the truth. <laughs> and so I had, and those are the influences you have in life. Now, I didn't use them to tell any, any, or get any lesson or anything. That's what, that's what they were, and that's what, you know, what they did. And why did you feel like that, that those two characters were necessary? Was it because it feels like that's the truth of life, and it so is. that's oh, the way and, to represent and, and it? That's, that's what especially kids run into, all those influences. And they act in different ways on them. And sometimes it'll destroy a youngster. And sometimes they'll learn things in reverse. I mean, they'll understand that the, the something is not right. And they, I understand it in a more meaningful way because they've had to reject it or live through it. And there are a lot of reasons, you know. But they were all done in, in my head for me because I wanted to understand what was happening. So most of the characters come in. Rhyme and reason were last-minute thought. They weren't the part princesses. of the story until after I had so much, and I said, "How the hell am I going to end this?" Because you didn't, because they, but because uh, they're the ones that they're Milo and and Talk and right. the Humbug are going to save. Yeah, but that didn't happen till later. The end. That, that came up, and I worked it back in, in the beginning. Because because where were they? Like, because did you just have them still taking a drive through this, the lands beyond? They were going all. These were, these were independent little bits and bits of business. Yes. You see. Yeah. But it made sense when I said, okay, they they're in a world in which every everything seems correct, but nothing's right. And, and this is why. Yeah, that's one of the one of the reasons why. Also, you you just you you just don't know. And so you already had um, as as and the math math magician as as the um, so uh, you have... math magician. No, as as was the um, king as as the unabridged the words. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. I'm get mixed up but myself you, sometimes. But you already had those two characters. Yeah. They were in... right on in the beginning. And that came from a book. God, what was his name? My memory's really become a disaster area. It was an English book written about the constant conflict between uh, the humanities and the sciences. Oh. Still exists, still in the world today, still exists as strongly as ever. That's why at the end of the book, when they're all sort of going off to do their own things, yes. they, both of them... Uh, as as and 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 uh, the mathematician are walking off together, and they're still arguing about word, words and numbers. Because I wanted that in there, and I didn't. I wasn't ever going to explain it. Some people understand it, some people don't. That that's going to go on forever. Yes. yes, it's no. It's not like there's any easy resolution no. of this. It's not. What's also sort of lovely is that Milo doesn't go back to the lands beyond. Oh, the one interesting question. That turns up. Ooh. Are we? How are we doing on time? We I have think time? we have we have enough time for this. Two minutes. Well, 
Let me see if I can get this in. Okay. <laughs> One interesting question that comes up. Everybody asks, who gets the toll booth next? They want to know. Kids especially want to know who gets the toll Well, the toll booth was a device I just dreamed up to get them from one world into another. And it's not going, as far as I'm concerned, anywhere to anybody more. What happens, the whole function of that toll booth was to take them out of being one thing into opening up a world that will show them, you know, other things. And, and, uh, and it works for some. It doesn't for others. It's like everybody in their life at certain moments will get an insight or will notice something, or will see something they never saw before, or will hear something in a way that they never perceived it before. It's a, um, uh, an epiphany, really. That's the only word that, that can describe it. And they, some people respond, it has a big effect on their lives. Other people, it goes, you know, right by. You don't know. But that's one of the key points of your life. It's where things, the possibility of decisive and important change occur because your mind is now open to something different or your whole consciousness is open. Not everybody uses it. I've tried to explain it and I've stopped because it's a hard concept for kids to understand. They haven't been through enough experience to understand that really. But they will someday, I hope. But also maybe it's enough for the the kids to know that someone else needs the toll booth. Yeah. Next. But I want to sort of demystify the thing that the toll booth will show up at this household and then with that household, you know, it doesn't right. work that way. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And Milo doesn't need it anymore because he's been opened. He's changed. He always has been. That's the problem. <laughs> but he, <laughs> then, he never noticed. Because he was so <laughs> quick. Yeah. It was... Uh, Norton, thank you so much oh. for coming today and talking to me mm-hmm. on the radio. Thank you. It was fun. And, and tomorrow you'll be at, at UMA giving the talk after the screening of the film at 5. You'll do a Q&A with Michael Byers Right, trying at to say o'clock. the same things in different words. Okay. I think you can do <laughs> it, right? Um, Dictionopolis. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, um, thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, well, thank for you. listening. Yeah. And, and Norton, come back any time. Right? How's well, tomorrow? That sounds good. <laughs> We're going to same time, same place. All right. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We, today on the program, Norton Juster, his incredible, his classic, The Phantom Toll Booth. Until next time. His wife. <laughs>